0: Everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Farouk, and I'm here with my co host, Nick Sigelski. And today we have a stellar enterprise sales leader. It's the one and only Mr. Ford Williams at the one and only Thought Spot. Nick, why should people listen?
1: Sometimes salespeople get stuck with blockers, meaning you're talking to someone. And you can't get any higher in the organization to say, sorry, Armand, sorry, Armand, please do not talk to our CFO, even though you know, you know in your heart of hearts that that CFO needs to be involved to get the deal done. And Ford is one of our best episodes we've had on how to navigate working with blockers to actually get to that CFO.
0: Three, two, block. You cannot listen to this episode. One, now you got to power. Enjoy the oh, show. Oh, <laughs>
1: Today's show is sponsored by Calendly. If you're interested in accelerating your sales cycle, improving your prospects' experience, and booking more demos, there's one scheduling automation platform on the market that does all three. Calendly offers team based scheduling, solutions and integrations for every department, and lead routing to instantly book qualified meetings from your website and match known leads to reps based on real time Salesforce assignment. I find it really helpful when I have to book meetings with multiple people on my side so that I don't have to coordinate everyone's calendars. Get started today by checking out the show notes or
0: This actionable tactic on selling to power is sponsored by SalesLoft. Don't start from zero when a champion introduces you to power. Explain the three to four priorities you learn from the champion, but then ask them to validate what's really important to them or what we miss. And we partnered with SalesLoft to give you a whole bunch of talk tracks on selling to power. The link is in the show notes.
1: All right, Ford, welcome to the show. We start every single interview with your top three actionable takeaways, so let's get your three.
2: Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Armand. First is change your calendar. I see more often than not that sales reps have tons of solo invites on their calendar, lunch on their calendar, go for a walk on their calendar, or prep time on their calendar. Change it. Eight to six, seven to six should be just customer facing. You can find time to prep late in the afternoon or early in the morning. We all have kids and so forth, and I understand that you don't always have time, but seven to eight, no one's picking up the phone, perfect time to prep. Four to five, less people pick up the phone. Another big one I see regarding calendars is that people all the time are building the perfect deck, the perfect X, the perfect Y for that meeting. Don't do that until you have the meeting. Book the meeting and work your way back, but don't do all that work, and then there's no guarantee of the meeting. That's a waste of time. So go look at your calendar right now. Review it, see what can be moved off of it, internal meetings, but really the ones that really shoot salespeople in the foot are their own meetings that they need to be reminded of. Think of a better way to remind yourself. Think of a better way to block off your time so you're maximizing time with your customers. Beautiful.
1: What's number two, Ford?
2: Get to your economic buyers or EBs early and often. Always be going after your EB. Is your EB or economic buyer in your PG plan? Are you personally? calling this individual? Are you personally emailing them, trying to establish a connection with them? If that's failing, are you using your executives or your board to get to them? Once a connection or relationship is established, never let it go and never fully outsource it out. You should always have a relationship with that economic buyer. Example, are you sending a weekly update on your POC, proof of concept, and how it's going to that economic buyer? Are you bringing it in the executive to also engage with that economic buyer on a regular basis? You don't want to just hit that economic buyer at the very end for the deal. So keep them updated at all turns. Compliment their team to them. They love hearing about that. They built that team from scratch. Compliment them and keep them engaged. That's my second one.
1: Beautiful. What's number three, Ford? Round us out.
2: Qualify on every meeting. Almost every sales rep can tell when a deal is not going to happen. It's the deals that will happen, but for very small that we all lose. We get to the end of the sales cycle, and they say, "Yeah, we budgeted thirty thousand dollars, and you were expecting two hundred fifty k." How do you change that? You qualify for every meeting. One thing I always did for, and I was taught this by uh, actually Parm at App Dynamics was, for every first meeting, new business meeting, once the meeting's booked, once you get that accept, ask for a prep call. It's just simple as this. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for the meeting next Tuesday. I want to better customize the deck, demo, and messaging for you. Can I get 15 minutes this week? You get that 15 minutes, and now you have carte blanche to ask questions for 15 minutes. So you want to ask questions about their pain that you will solve, the use cases, et cetera. But really what you want to get at is, is this worth my time? Am I going to make money? Will this put an actual dent in my quota? So even before you start that sales cycle, you're going into it knowing its size knowing if it's meaningful to you, knowing if it will make a mark on your year. There's three. All righty, so Ford,
0: you're operating in a, a pretty intense enterprise environment where your reps might only have 10 accounts, for instance. And if you only had one contact you were working, on one of your 10 accounts, that's a really slow way to hit your number on a book that small. So let's say that I might have contact with a director or manager at the company that I'm trying to prospect into, but it's a slow crawl to power through them. How do I get to power in that type of sales cycle without disrupting the relationship with my initial champion?
2: I would actually say, when you're reaching out to that initial champion, your PG plan should always be high and wide. So more often than not, we start low or start in middle management, and then we are trying to get up, and that person becomes a blocker because we've inadvertently given them power to block us. By calling them, by empowering them with our meeting, with our love, with our champion building, we've empowered them to make a decision or to run a process that they're not fit to run, or maybe they haven't done a project like this before. So to answer your question, I'm kind of answering asymmetrically. But don't ever just go after that mid-level management because it's very hard for them to block you if you're already talking to people above them. They almost have to get on the train instead of be in front of the train. So that'd be the first big one. And then if, if that person does become a blocker, it's okay to outsource that work to people above you at your company. That blocker, or that middle management person can't really say, hey, your CEO shouldn't reach out to my CEO. I don't control my CEO's calendar. I'm not his EA. And you're not your CEO's EA. So that's also a creative way to get around that.
0: So Ford, let's say that we have a champion and they have gone and pre-proposed to the economic buyer. This is what ThoughtSpot does. This is why we think it's going to be valuable. Maybe here's a screenshot or two, what have you. Here's the use case. Now that executive is primed, they jump on the call with you. How are you making use of those 30 minutes?
2: Well, we should have a tight agenda. And the agenda hopefully has been shared with the EB beforehand. Right? Hopefully, it's not just in the invite. You, you send that them in their EA, maybe champion. It's probably a big threat at this point, five or six people, the proposed agenda. Please let us know if you'd like to cover anything else. And then when you do show up, I believe slides are a good thing. It's nice to have something tangible. 10 slides is too many for an EB meeting. You should have two, three, four max, and they should be tight. I personally like to start with value. I decide, I've chosen to really show value through three whys. Why anything? Why ThoughtSpot in my case? Why now? right? So why anything? Why your company? Why now? I think one slide, the more metrics that can be on it and the more quotes that can be on it, the more impactful. You can have quotes with metrics from people that CEO or economic buyer recognize. Tons of credibility in that. Two, I sometimes see this. I kind of like this one a lot, a timeline slide. Maybe that's slide one and slide two is three-wise. I also really like a timeline slide. A lot of times, they don't know the level of work that you have put in, but also their team has put in. They're thinking maybe this got to them a month in or two months in. and A lot of times, you'll be six months in or five months in. It's like, whoa. and it, That's a credibility. It's a credibility measure. It also it, it kind of hastens everything from there on out. They'll want to move a little faster. And then you're with an EB, so you should make an ask. So that slide three or four, it should be both a proposal or pricing discussion. And it's all pricing and proposal discussions are time based. So you should also ask about time. See if you can do it in quarter, in year, whatever is important to you.
0: Gotcha. There's a lot going on here. And so to play it back, you're having your champion preface the use case, the why, a lot of the things that they might have technical questions on just so you can get those out of the way. And then you're really focusing your meeting on the why and getting specific into a business case and then making an ask on timeline to your economic buyer. Ford, I have to assume that this is later in your sales cycle oftentimes because it sounds like there's a lot of work that you've done early in your sales cycle to get to this point, right? And so for the audience, what I would love is a lot of people don't understand how an enterprise sales cycle can be six months long. Can you help orient us around where this is in the deal cycle? In other words, like what are the key meetings that have happened up until this point
2: that got us here in the first place? It's a fantastic question. I just wanna start with, everything I'm about to say is conditioned by, have you qualified it? Do you know you're working a deal that's worth it? Like working a big meaty sales cycle that may take six months isn't worth it unless there's big spend on the other end. So just be cognizant. So you're absolutely right. What we're talking about is probably what I would consider. We have Every company has different sales cycles, but I'd say you're either 80 or 90% of the way through. Basically, they, that meeting is one of the last meetings that, I, that we've been describing. Sales cycle usually starts right from the first meeting, PG maybe, but really the first meeting, POC, and that's where you get a lot of those metrics, the quotes, the proof points, and then hopefully you've already met with the EB or keeping that person up to date, and you're building everything I've talked about, that timeline, that three Y's, all that credibility, but you're documenting everything. You've got to document everything you learn. So that EB meeting, the executive engagement, hopefully it's early, the earlier the better that you can start it. But when you start it, it can be light. It can be just about relationship building. But by the time where we talked about where you're probably only a few meetings away, you're probably 80 or 90% of the way done.
1: So Ford, I have a real world example that I want to ask you about how I should handle. So I do all of our sponsorship sales for 30 Minutes to President's Club right now. And I've got a customer who, they have some small spend with us. But recently I got lucky and I got to meet with the CMO of that customer. And that person shared two big problems that he's looking to solve, sort of initiatives that he's focused on. And where we came out of that meeting was, Nick is gonna put together sort of a rough strategy about, hey, here's how I think we could solve some of those with you. And then I'm gonna go run with that person's team assuming that they're happy with that strategy on like building out a plan for how we're going to execute on this thing and i'm sitting here thinking about a couple things one assuming that this person likes the strategy that i came back with which i think they will how should i be keeping them updated as i work with their team throughout sort of the building out of the sales cycle and then two i don't know how big to swing like I don't know how big of an ask I should have budget wise. I don't know should I be like keeping it small? Should I be swinging for the fences and potentially overshooting? I'm curious your guidance on this sort of situation that I don't know how to handle.
2: It's a great question, and there's a lot in there. I'll start with the updating piece, right? You you've done a fun, fantastic job, Nick. You already got to the EB, and now you're going to go come back on ways you can solve or, or address the two initiatives there's a couple ways. One is the mid POC check-in. I know it's not a POC in this industry, but kind of the mid engagement check-in. Like, hey, I want to check in a week or two from now. I know we're not going to be done, but just to make sure we're on track. Like what we've done to date is exactly where you want it to be at the end state. So I like that. My team, I give credit a lot to my team. here. They do a fantastic job of this. I specifically see this from Mitch Mueller, which is he will send quotes from the team or do a lot of what he gains from the team and take it and send it to the EB. Instead of I'm updating them, he's really using their words or their work, you know, depending on the industry, and sharing it with the EB. I think that's impactful. It gets back to the I'm complimenting you on the team you've built and now I'm showing you the fantastic work we're doing together to address your two initiatives. And then how big to swing. This is such a phenomenal question because we just ran into I just ran into a situation where we didn't swing big enough, which was Tough. I think, first of all, how big to swing? Back to my, my one of my themes today, which is qualify early and often. Keep qualifying. Two, I think you have to be curious in that how big is their company? How big is their marketing spend? Things that they may not share with you, but may be public. Or you may be able to figure out from other podcasts or other places they spend money. Are you about to ask for $50,000 for yours and another podcast with the same number of viewers gets $500,000? In my world, that'd be the partner ecosystem. I'd be calling Snowflake, Redshift, Databricks, trying to understand their spend, right? And get that in yours and maybe another podcaster or another traditional means of advertising. Also, how to swing big. At the end of the day, Nick, there's also an art part of this. There's a lot of science, whether it's everything I just mentioned, there's an art. Understanding their business, understanding the people you're working with, knowing your momentum. As I said, we, we came up a little early the customer really wanted us to share pricing. My team I was like, don't, don't. It, it's not the right time. We were kind of forced into it. We did go big, but then we got on site and this champion set us up with the CIO. This is a, one of the top five pharmaceuticals in America. He set up with the CIO. He set us up with, we had a 150 person meeting where we showed everyone there. And there was just like, whoa, we have so much momentum. And frankly, there's going to be so much demand. I'm not going to charge them more or anything, but it's like, there's going to be so much demand. We got Maybe we did a bad job kind of scoping out the demand here. And we should have just waited a week to scope out the demand. And so back to your question, Nick, there is definitely a science part of it, whether it's checking with partners, knowing their spend, et cetera. But there's also an art part of it, of knowing your momentum in the account, how strong is your champion, how favorable is the EB on you? So there's definitely a science and an art.
0: One thing that I oftentimes worry about is I want to be pricing high, because I want us to be perceived as the winner in the market and the premium solution. And oftentimes people will feel like they get a great win if they got the most expensive tool at a more reasonable price, right? Because there's perceived value based on where you priced at the beginning. However, the other concern that I have is economic buyers very, very quickly can make prioritization decisions and kill things. And sometimes I have concerns about pricing so high that I don't even get the chance to negotiate. So people immediately walk in the deal. So I'm curious, once you get to the commercial side, how do you think about where your ask lands such that you don't price so
2: high that you scare someone away? I think it's when you when in the sales cycle, or are you talking about pricing and with who? So we've all been on those early calls where you, you know you're talking to someone low level, but they just want pricing and they won't let it go. And you have to be confident in your list pricing. You just have to be confident in it. Here's an example. I need to know your price. I need to know. It. And you just can't get around it. You can't get off this call without it. I would say two things. One is, here's our list price. There's two things that affect it. Volume. We have volume discounting. Secondly, timing. If you do this this year, it's going to be less. So those are the two things. So, we've seen plenty of customers get much lower than that price, but those are the two things. Later on in the sales cycle, you can get a champion to coach you on the pricing. Are you being too aggressive? Are you not being aggressive enough? Are you not including enough things? What's important to them, but also what's going to be important to procurement? This doesn't always happen, by the way. Don't get me wrong. But recently, I've seen a few times where someone say, this is what's important to procurement. This is what's going to be important to them. So if you can kind of get that inside baseball coaching, it's helpful. So I would say be aggressive, be more confident in a higher price, because after everything I said, you can always go down. You can't go up.
0: So Ford, a lot of what you're describing is contingent on having a stellar champion yeah. that's willing to give you the inside baseball so to speak. And that requires a number of things, which is number one, you need to have trust with them such that they're willing to give you that information. But then number two, they also need to be smart enough that they even know what the inside scoop is and they don't lead you in the wrong direction. So I know you've talked about these four steps of champion building a couple times. And so I actually wanna drill a little bit deeper into this. So the first step that you talk about in champion building is identifying a champion. And I think you do some really, really interesting things like looking at who listens when they speak in the room to figure out if this person has any political clout. So upon first sight of someone who you think might be a champion, how do you go about sussing out if you think they're a worthwhile champion to guide you through a sale.
2: So how do you identify that champion? They join a meeting. You may not even set it with them. They join. And when they walk in the room, do people take notice? When they speak Zoom, does everyone listen? When you're discussing the next steps at the end of the call, are they the person setting the next steps with you? Are they the one driving it? Another one, are they asking tough questions? I think a junior sales, oh, they're asking tough questions, I want to stay away. But if they're tough but relevant questions, that means they've actually, they probably have brought other projects in. Like they have scars from delivering on other projects. That's another one. Of course, where do they sit in the org? Who do they report to? Good one is, did they follow the economic buyer here from a previous company? Or have they worked together? before? Is this the right-hand man or woman of the economic buyer? So there's a few. There's many, and I can keep going, but you absolutely need to identify because if you don't identify correctly and then you go to step two, three, and four, hopefully we'll cover, you have wasted a ton of time. And you another one, Armand, you said smart enough to coach, smart enough. It's hard to have a champion who's only been there for six months. They need to know their way around the organization. They need to know what levers to pull, what's important to people. So are they intelligent enough? That's another one I would add to identifying.
1: Well, it's really interesting what you just described because in a perfect world, you win over every single person that you ever meet with at the organization. But we don't live in a perfect world and you have to place bets on the people you're going to invest your effort in to win over. And what you just described are two things that the audience can do. One is the person who is asking you the tough but relevant questions. They can't just be the person who's like, doing the stump the chump thing and asking you a bunch of weird questions. If they're asking relevant questions that are hard, that's actually a signal that that's the person you should be putting effort into winning over. And then I really like the one where it's like, oh, okay, Nick followed Armand from org A to org B. Like, they must be pretty tight. This is a person to win over. I think I understand step two, which is build. That's sort of the next piece of your framework. Like, okay, build relationship with that person, connect with them. Talk to me about Testing said champion.
2: Test. Test is the most overlooked and skip step. And it's the step that kills you. Cause then you go to use or leverage and you ask for the purchase or something of that level and they're unable to deliver because you haven't test. So how do you test? One is can you share an org chart with me? Can you show a screen share of the procurement process, your coupa? Do you mind sharing that person's phone number? Do you mind making an introduction? So what's so important about tests is don't skip it. Like make sure you're doing tests along the way because when the big ask comes, it will be late in your quarter. It will be late in your year and you'll have a time frame that you have to hit. So make sure to test.
0: So can you unpack this one a little bit more? I I love this concept of, I almost imagine like you're on the sidelines and it's a quarterback talking to their coach and you have the squares and the arrows and you're almost like planning your next three plays together. Walk us through, what are you doing? Are you literally like drawing an org chart together and saying, we're gonna start with this person, then go here, then go here? How do you game plan a sales cycle with a champion?
2: Armand, that's such a fantastic analogy, actually. It's not unlike that. So it can happen many different ways. The, the way I was just describing that actual story, we were doing in terms of spend. How would we get the spend? What could we cut? What was the number of that product? What was that product? How much was that? How could we cut? We could get budget from this group. We could get budget from that group. So we are basically doing a whole math equation that had multi-factors, the tools, the people, as well as where we can get budget. That's one. But you also hit on another one that I see is when – A lot of times you are doing an org chart. I have done that as well on a piece of paper. You're kind of, or just on a zoom or a call, but Hey, these are the people and this is what's important to them. And this is how we're going to win them over. And you start assigning functions and roles. I can take this person. This person will want to speak. This person's, you know, when you're talking to champ, a lot of times test, Hey, this person has got an ego. We need to bring in what your, your C-suite to talk to this person. This person's super technical. Can you bring in your technical person? So it is much like X's and O's of Joe Montana and Bill Walsh. You're absolutely getting into it at that level. Well,
0: Ford, what you're doing is, I find that the best sellers are able to almost get a prospect to forget that they are a sales rep. And one way to do that is you go from asking can you do this, right? Can you get budget? Or can you get your boss to sign off on this? To getting on the same side of the table and saying, shoot, I'm hearing it's gonna be tough to get budget. Hey, I've seen budgets get approved a lot. Like, c- could you give me a sense of like what's in there? Cause I might be able to give you a couple ideas on where other customers have pulled things out. Or maybe we can like jam on this together and figure out how we can make room in the budget. And so you're basically bringing them on the same side of the table, And you're saying, hey, let me help you unpack some of these walls. And meanwhile, they've actually forgotten that you're trying to sell them something, which is great. And so now you've tested your champion and hopefully you've aligned on some sort of game plan and you realize that they are willing to embark on this game plan with you. And you have some really, really interesting things to do when you're using your champion. And so where are the most common places that you actually make that big Ask in your sales cycle. It sounds like a lot of it is around like procurement and whatnot.
2: A few different areas. I think if you have a champion early, getting the POC off the ground—that's definitely a big one. Can you help whatever your technology requires to get off the ground? A lot of times you need IT or security permissions, and you can get those permissions. You just need someone pushing. So that's one. Another big one is legal. Legal does not prioritize anything. They're not told to prioritize. Why should they? They don't have the context. So another ask your champion is getting legal through. You can even get very tactical there. It's because some things you just can't give on on legal, whether it's indemnification or whatever it may be. So you may have to go to them and say, hey, we're at our max, truly right at a max. Can you lean on your legal to meet us halfway? So th- there's, there's tons even in legal. That's another one. Remember the definition, at least my definition is someone that sells on your behalf and has influence over the EB. So more often than not, it's all headed after you've done some of those, and there's many more. Can you get us the meeting? Can you bring us to the EB? Because ideally you want to be in that room, frankly. You don't just want to have your champion because they may get tough questions they can't answer. Remember, you're the expert on your product. So can you get this meeting? And if that meeting happens and is successful, then it turns to can you help get the deal done in a time frame that's meaningful to us? There's more. As I said, you get just an illegal, you can get into an order form and get into terms like things that you're willing to give and and as you said, you want to slide that chair around the desk. You're on the same side. What's important to you? Let me go fight for you. The whole time you're fighting for your champion. So even though we're using terms like test and use, the champion hopefully is benefiting even more because they're getting so much more from this relationship because you have that relationship. They can make asks that someone at a distance could never make of you.
0: So, Ford, a couple of times you've talked about specific things that happen in vendor review, whether it's procurement, legal, what have you. And this is oftentimes one place where possibly hundreds of thousands of dollars can swing in one direction or another. So you've done things like pulling your champion to the side and being like, hey, look, we're really tapped out here on the legal side. I know this is our wall. And what you're doing is you're basically going behind the scenes and using your champion to nudge their team internally and say, hey, guys, back off. I know that we can't push on this one anymore. Are there other things you're doing to pull more information, whether that might be, I don't know, maybe you you know, you ask them if procurement typically likes this amount of discount. So that means you need to pad the quote this much. Or are you able to dig in around how aggressive legal tends to be? In other words, how much inside baseball can you get from your prospect or what should reps be asking about the procurement and vendor review process that a legal or procurement person would never tell you?
2: I want to start with, as you go into procurement, you should be checking with other vendors and partners that have gone through this process and knowing what got asked to them, what they had to do to get the deal done, right? If you can just get three or four to talk to you, you're going to be in such a better shape. So that being said, what are you asking of them, of that person? The first and foremost question is what's important to you and what's important to the EB? Great. Get that. What's important to procurement? What, man, that shifts, by the way. Let's be very clear. That changes all the time. What's important to procurement today is very different than it was 12 months ago with how the economy has changed, right? And it changes all the time. So you want to ask them. Also, you want to ask procurement what's important to them. They'll come out and say it. So you want to ask everyone what's important to them. And then I think once you know what's important to them, you know where you can give and not give. So a good example, let's get back to that legal one. Legal doesn't really hurt me as a salesperson. I mean, in the broader scope, it could hurt the company if we get sued into oblivion, right? But like it doesn't hurt my paycheck. So as long as it's within the realm, that's something I can give on. But more often than not, sales reps, especially newer sales, make this mistake. Oh, I can give on it, so I will. You have to make them earn that give. So when they're coming for you over on something that really matters to you, maybe like the unit cost, hey, I can't do that, but if we go from 5X to 6X on indemnification, would that matter? Or I can't do this, but if we give you something free because you mentioned you want a developer playground. So if you can get what's important and then make them earn those, you can maybe maintain some of your margin, maintain some of your price point
1: Ford, this is brilliant. I wish we could go even longer and longer and longer, but we are running out of time. So we got to move to the final question. And the final question is this. We have talked about a lot of great things that salespeople should be doing. Now we got to talk about a shouldn't. And so the last question is what is one bad habit that you see a lot of salespeople exhibiting that you think they need to break because it hurts them more than it helps?
2: I just came across this one in the past two or three years. Salespeople are always inadvertently enabling their blockers. They're enabling their blockers. They come back and say, I'm blocked. This person's blocking me. I can't get higher. And more often than not, they've created that situation. They create that situation to start by PGing into the wrong people. They create that situation by engaging with that person past the first meeting. They create that situation By running a POC through them when they should have never run a POC with that person in the first place. Right? They create that situation by being a supplicant to that person instead of an equal. Even though we're selling to people, we are their equal and they are our equal. All men and women are equal. So when you need to just be an equal, you're not blocked. That person's not your boss's EA or their boss's boss's EA. They don't decide the decisions for the entire company. And so if I could just give one tip is Don't inadvertently enable your blocker. Don't PG into them. Don't love them. Don't spend time with them. Realize that you're with a blocker and then just don't engage.
1: Boom, beautiful. Ford, thank you for joining us. Everybody stick around for a 60 second recap coming up soon.
0: Rocket reach. so if you like this, check out their toolkit on eight ways to triple your cold call connects in the show notes.
1: Today's sales email tip is brought to you by Lavender. If you want to get more replies to your sales emails, try removing exclamation points and question marks from your email subject lines. They cause open rates to plummet. Instead, make the subject line feel internal. It should be short, one to three words, and it should showcase the topic of the email, but also be about them. We sat down with Lavender and built a sales email framework guide with emails for every step of your sales process. And there is a link in the show notes to get it for free.
0: Your top four takeaways from this episode with Ford, Williams include, number one, don't enable your own blockers by prospecting into people below the line or taking a million meetings with a non-economic buyer or a non-champion. Number two, when you do have a champion, Use that champion to pre-brief your economic buyer so that when you meet with your EB, that meeting can be focused on solving business problems, not technical problems. Number three, one way to figure out if you even have the right champion is figure out who takes the next steps. Look at who gets listened to when they speak and also listen to the types of questions they're asking. Make sure they're the ones asking the tough questions. And lastly, number four, when you're in a negotiation, play the table with all of the asks. And one trade-off you can make is if someone has a monetary ask, decline the monetary ask and exchange it for a non-monetary ask. Alrighty, Nick, how could people help us out here?
1: So I'm going to unblock something for the audience and the folks who have actually stuck around this deep in the interview. Did you know, were you aware that we actually have a website over here at 30 Minutes to President's Club? And on said website, we don't block anything except ads, no ads on the website. And on that website, you can get tactic toolkits like the stuff that Armand and I are learning every single week doing this show. So if you want to steal our best stuff, like our prospecting strategy and our cold call scripts, that stuff is at a very hard to find website called 30MPC.com. So go there, steal some stuff, and we'll see you next week on 30 Minutes to Presidents Club. you